This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in the show, Monday, we had good news on a COVID vaccine from Moderna, created with a billion dollars of taxpayer funding. Greg Gonsalves will take up the question, why does Moderna get to keep all the profits? And Ella Taylor talks about this season's guilty pleasure on TV, The Crown, on PBS Masterpiece Theater. In season four, Margaret Thatcher fights the queen, and Prince Charles marries a woman he doesn't love, Princess Diana. But first, Mike Davis, historian and activist. Of course, he's the author of many books, including City of Quartz, and most recently, Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s. I'm co-author on that one. We reached him today at home in San Diego. Hi, Mike. Hi, John. Well, let me start with some numbers. We had a huge increase in turnout on both sides. Biden got 10 million more votes than Hillary did four years ago. Tremendous increase. 76 million votes total. He beat Trump by 5 million. But Trump got 8 million more votes this time than he did four years ago. That's sort of the great shock of this election. People saw what he did as president, and 71 million people wanted four more years. The great shock of the 2016 election was not just that Trump won, but that he did it by winning the votes of some white working class people in the Rust Belt, people who had been Democrats, had voted for Obama, not all of them voted for Trump, of course, in 2016, but just enough to put him over the top in those three key states, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. This time, of course, Biden won those states, again, by small margins. Uh, let me start by asking you about the Trump vote in general. What, what do you see as the main components of the Trump vote? Well, Trump got about 71 or 72 million votes, but every opinion poll since his inauguration. He's the first modern president who's never had a majority in the opinion polls. But it consistently showed that 40% of the population supports him regardless of whether people are dropping dead outside or, you know, the neighborhood's going up in, in, in fire. So if you would apply that 40%, and I know this isn't scientific, but apply that to the election total, and what you get are 56, 57 million Trump voters, the hardcore. And they were, um, they were pulled on the election eve. 25% of them considered either the pandemic or global warming to be a problem, a significant problem. Okay, so that's the, the bunker. But he also got about 14 million other votes. This I'd call the soft core Trump vote. And what explains this, if adventure hypothesis, is the fact that election eve polls, and of course polls have failed miserably once again, so you have to take this with a grain of salt. But those polls showed that the pandemic came in a number three amongst issues that voters in both parties were concerned about. The first issue was employment followed by racial inequality, followed by that pandemic. And I think the greatest strategic mistake of the Democratic campaign, the Biden's campaign, 
is he did not fuse together the issues of jobs and the pandemic. For instance, in April, when rank and file health workers and others started going out on strike against the appallingly unsafe conditions in hospitals and warehouses and so on, the Democrats should have pushed that point, say, we want to keep people at work, but people can't work in unsafe conditions. And that's because OSHA and the Labor Department hasn't responded to a single one of thousands of complaints. Again, in the uh, final stretch, in the debates, he should have insisted, we are the party of jobs. But what we're facing is going to be a series of shutdowns, again, to really open and revive the economy, in addition to a big relief bill that gives people income security. We need a national pandemic plan. As it ended up, the two issues became severed. So Biden ran, especially on the issue of Trump's mishandling of the, the pandemic, but Trump got to run on, on, on jobs. And of course, the third quarterly returns showed a uh, fairly dramatic uh, recovery, though it may not last longer than the next month or two as a second wave of pandemic. The October job figures were good. So my hypothesis is simply this, that the difference between this photocopy of 2016 that we're seeing now and a democratic landslide was precisely this factor. People who might otherwise loathe Trump were terrified by the idea of more closures, particularly in the absence of small business loans and of income supports. So they chose what for them was the, the lesser evil, public health, over what they saw as a necessity, which was jobs and family income. The uh, postmortems in the mainstream media have focused on the way uh, the Democrats, and Biden in particular, failed to get significant returns from the Latino vote. It's dawning on the mainstream media that the category Latino is actually complex, that you know, Cubans in Florida, Puerto Ricans in New Jersey, uh, Mexicans in Southern California are actually quite distinct groups that don't vote alike. But the most startling thing to me was the reports from Texas, from the Rio Grande Valley, that the Mexican-American communities there voted for Trump. And this was a huge surprise to Biden, too. What's your understanding of what's going on in Texas? Well, first of all, I mean, Texas is the great prize the key to the future of American politics. It's the powerhouse of the Republican Party. And to a large extent, it offsets California's uh, huge vote in electoral college delegation. Texas Democrats have pleaded, screamed for years for more involvement and, and investment from the national Democrats. The 2018 election where Beto O'Rourke came within a couple points of unseating Cruz, was powerful ammunition for the cause of making Texas a battleground. At the end of the day, it was Bloomberg and another Democratic billionaire who finally, late in the race, pumped a lot of money in. And that money was all targeted on nine or 10 Texas House legislative seats. And the reason this was seen as so important is because one way that the 
Republicans have been fighting uh, and trying to prevent the translation of demographic change into a Democratic majority has been their ability to gerrymander the state. Texas, of course, is now majority minority and has been for 12 or 14 years. So it was seen if they could win nine of those seats, then the Democrats would have control of the legislature and they could prevent a new gerrymand. In fact, they lost all of those seats. Now, an odd thing is about this, that almost every veteran campaign manager and uh, political consultant in Texas will say it's not the suburbs. Uh, Texas Observer, by the way, pointed out that this clearly reveals there is a ceiling to democratic progress in the suburbs. It's not the suburbs that are the key. It's South Texas with its huge reservoir of non-voting people, you know, who are Democrats or should be Democrats. And Perez, the head of the DNC, acknowledged this. He and Kamala Harris made this, you know, last minute visit two or three days before the election to South Texas. And he says, South Texas is the key to uh, Texas and to national politics. But in fact, the Democrats did hardly anything to bring out the vote in South Texas, believing this was a captive, safe, democratic area. And I'm actually talking not so much about San Antonio, which is, of course, a well-organized political machine run by the Castro brothers, but the seven major border counties. Now, Clinton won those by 40 percent. Biden only won them by 15 percent. And in one poor 80 percent Latino county, Valverde County, that's the McAllen, Texas area, big uh, NAFTA corridor, the Republicans took this. And this has been interpreted in in different ways. Some people say, well, Tejanos are more conservative than Chicanos. Too many of them work for ICE, or it's the Catholic right to light vote down there. But these kinds of explanations don't stand up to the fact that Bernie Sanders was hugely successful in the border areas in South Texas. He won all uh, the populous counties from San Antonio uh, South. Now, he had 200 young Latino organizers full-time on his national staff. So he was able to put considerable resources and create the strong impression that he was listening and understood the needs of the community. So it's not so much that Latinos, Tejanos in South Texas, have turned to the right, but the ones who turned to the left had so little motivation to vote for Biden. Also, I want to talk about the Rust Belt, which you did that wonderful research on in the, your Jacobin piece about the 2016 election, where you focused on places that had been organized by the CIO in the 30s and followed what happened to them politically uh, over the last decade. Just remind us what your methodology is there and what you're finding now. Well, what I did in 2016 is I just looked at county returns in 15 cases of smaller, medium-sized industrial cities that had voted twice for Obama. And then I went back and I read through the local press in each area, and I found examples of significant job losses, new plant closures, which seemed to correlate to the fact that uh, Trump seemed to speak more directly to these issues than Clinton did. So I've just revisited this. And of course, the statistics are still somewhat provisional. 
But what they show is that Biden was able to reclaim a couple of areas, most significantly Erie, Pennsylvania, a major industrial center, which has had recently big losses from its its largest plant, which is the G plant that makes uh, locomotive engines. But on the other hand, Trump won Mahoning County, which is Youngstown area. And overall, Biden's progress in the counties he won is only about a two or two and a half percent improvement over Clinton. And only one case, Rock Island County, Illinois, which is part of this uh, Quad City area, did he actually repair the damage of the 2016 election? Now, one way to look at this is, I mean, when Biden speaks about employment and the future of work in the country, he constantly talks about millions of jobs created by green energy. Those millions of jobs are an empty abstraction on the dinner tables of these areas when people are sitting down looking at their bills. And because so many of them were former Obama supporters, you can't easily connect their votes for Trump to racism. But the point is, the Democratic parties had a generation to answer the simple question of what are you going to do to increase employment opportunity and economic stability in Erie or Laredo or Warren, Ohio? I mean, you know, you can go on. And the Democrats have had no answer. That's not just an American problem. What you've seen in Western Europe, where hardcore industrial bastions of, of, of the left, the European equivalents of the Rust Belt, north of England, uh, north of France, eastern Germany, and so on, is that labor and social, social democratic parties haven't provided those answers either. The answers have to consist, I think, of geographically targeted public investment, controls over capital flight, financial outflows, and most of all, the real solution to the, to the jobs question is a massive expansion of public employment. And of course, apart from the actual social Democrats in Congress, the squad and the people who've been newly elected, no, no Democrat is prepared to go down that road. Democrats have, you know, just cower in front of the, you know, kind of villainous attacks on, on, on government and, and the public sector since the Reagan era began. So, you know, you have kind of stasis there. Trump didn't make any gains. So the extent he made gains, uh, they can be entirely attributed to people who voted for the Libertarian Party in 2016, now voted uh, for him. So there's no real change at all. So finally, Mike, you're writing about this. Where can we find this new piece? Well, there's a snippet of it. It appears as a column in the latest London Review of Books. But uh, my big piece will appear in my favorite magazine, The New Left Review, sometime at the uh, end of November, beginning of December. Mike Davis. Mike, great to have you on the show. Thank you so much, John. the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in LA on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com.
Monday, we had good news on a COVID vaccine. Moderna has announced their vaccine is 94.5% effective, and it's a lot easier to ship and store than the Pfizer vaccine we heard about last week. For comment, we turn to Greg Gonsalves. He works in epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health, and he's been an AIDS activist for 30 years. He writes regularly for The Nation about the pandemic, and he's also the winner of a MacArthur Genius Fellowship. Greg Gonsalves, welcome back. Thanks, John. Well, how good is this news from Moderna? So we've had word from two companies now, Johnson & Johnson and Moderna, that they have vaccines that are in excess of 90% effective which is based on interim analyses of, of their trials by statisticians, it bodes well. You know, it'd be, it's better than saying we looked at the data and there was nothing there. And we have to go back to the drawing board. But we don't have a lot more knowledge of what, what's in those data sets, what the trials look like, what the long-term effects are. You know, there's more unanswered questions than there are answered ones. And so optimistic, hopeful, but, you know, Trust and verify, as Reagan used to say. Let's find out what's going on. It's good news in a dark time, and so I'm not going to throw cold water on it. But again, like, please understand these are preliminary results. They're little more than press releases by these companies, and only the data will tell us if these vaccines are safe and efficacious um, over the long term. And Moderna says theirs is a lot easier to ship and store than the Johnson & Johnson one. Yeah, but... The, both of these vaccines require cold chains. The Johnson Johnson one, I think they need super cold storage, which, you know, some people are like, it's just dry ice. Well, it is dry ice if you have access to it, but it's probably a little bit more than that. You know, remember, these vaccines need to be given out to hundreds of millions of people, potentially billions of people, not just in the United States, but all over the world. Um, and so, you know, when we're talking about access to these new vaccines, we're not just talking about where you live and where I live, but, you know, Central Africa and Southeast Asia and other places around the world. Um, some which have well-developed scientific infrastructure and research and clinical infrastructure who can do this, some that, it, that do not and are going to have to be supplied with vaccines no matter what the level of infrastructure there is on the ground. Now let's talk about the bad news, what's happening right now. One Report, uh, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer announced on Sunday that she was ordering the shutdown of some businesses and halting in-person learning at high schools and colleges in the state for three weeks to combat a rapid increase in coronavirus cases there. Then Dr. Scott Atlas, President Trump's coronavirus advisor, wrote on Twitter Sunday night, quote, the only way this stops is if people rise up. You get what you accept, close quote. I wonder what your comment is on Scott Atlas. So a couple of things. One is we are in the worst phase of the pandemic. Um, if you look at any of the curves uh, in your local newspapers or in the New York Times that I look at every morning, we are far in excess of the number of cases we had this time in March. And we are likely to see a wave of hospitalizations and death over the next few weeks. They're going to make March look like a picnic. The beginning of the year, early spring, the, the epidemic was concentrated in New York and some other big cities. Now it's a giant coast-to-coast -coast mess, right? If you look at the, the maps, the upper plains and, and Midwest are just a splotch of red. It's a, it's a region on fire with SARS-CoV-2 everywhere. The question is, what do we do about it now? You know, we need to do mask mandates, but more than that, give masks out to anybody who needs it. We have to get people to stay home, but many people can't stay home because it's an economic necessity that they go to work. 
Um, and so we have far few resources to deal with the sort of conflagration that's happening now. Um, and governors are struggling to figure out what to do. You know, blunt force lockdowns are this, in, in a weird sense, the sign of failure because we can't do anything more surgical or tactical because we just simply don't have the resources. Scott Atlas has comment, it doesn't dignify a response. It's irresponsible. It's just quackery. The man is a charlatan. It just, there's, he doesn't deserve any credibility or, or credence as a public health figure. Just because he's an MD after his name um, doesn't mean anything in, in my book. Um, he's shown himself to have absolute disregard for the evidence and for human life. He's become an ideologue uh, of the worst kind, an anti-science zealot, uh, and, and I, I can't even imagine what motivates the man. Can you give us any estimate of how many people are likely to die of the virus before the vaccine is available? Well, if I could predict the future, I'd be in a more lucrative profession. But, <laughs> you know, the, the cases are going up. We're, you know, we're over a quarter of a million cases, uh, deaths already. It's conceivable that by the time January rolls around, we'll have 300 to f between somewhere between 300 and 400,000 deaths. Um, remember when the vaccine rolls out, um, it's going to go to healthcare workers first. Then it's going to go to, you know, next to people who we consider extremely vulnerable, so the 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 elderly. And so the the tide of deaths is not going to abate magically in January or the day after we have an uh, FDA approval of a vaccine. It's going to take time to to vaccinate people and 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 confer protection to people. And so it, this is going to be a long haul throughout the rest of 2021, probably. America has never attempted to vaccinate so many people on such short notice, especially with a deadly virus. And we have a lot of polling evidence of resistance from skeptics and anti-vaxxers. The poll showed a big drop in willingness to get the vaccine between May and September from 72% of people said they would definitely or probably get the vaccine when it was available back in May. In September, that was down to 50%. And, and there's much more resistance among black people. Only 32% of African-Americans in the Pew poll said they, they would get the vaccine. What do you make of all of this? Well, a couple of things. One is remember 50% of Americans get vaccinated for flu every year. So our vaccination rates for adults is not great, right? Um, and again, it's among communities of color, vaccination rates are less. Childhood vaccines, although we see outbreaks of uh, measles and other diseases regularly in the U.S. because there are pockets of people who don't want to take vaccines, we have a pretty good record on childhood vaccinations in the United States, notwithstanding these sort of sporadic outbreaks in different places. The vaccines got embroiled in a, the politics of the final months of the election, and along with masks, and you know we're going to have a long road to hoe in terms of figuring out how to regain the public's trust about the safety and efficacy of vaccines. I think, you know, it's going to take leadership. You know, I'm going to roll up my sleeve and get vaccinated. Other people in public health should do it, show it's safe, show it's important to do. I probably won't be first in line because I'm not a healthcare worker and I'm not super elderly. So um, I think that we're going to have to have leadership from the White House and from other political and, and public health figures to get people to, to do this and to have support from within communities themselves to, to teach each other and to counsel each other about the importance of protecting each other through vaccination. I, I read that 60% uh, of the national pharmacy chains have agreed to provide vaccinations on site. This is places like Walgreens, CVS, and also Walmart and Costco. That seems very promising to me. 
Yeah, I mean, commercial infrastructure, you know, there's a, everybody's like within a half an hour drive of a Walmart in the United States. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I saw, I've seen figures. To the, so, like, if you add all these commercial pharmacies and big chain stores that have the potential to, to vaccinate, we cover a large part of the American landscape, including rural areas. You know, the question is somebody has to coordinate all those deliveries. Somebody needs to make sure that the vaccines get to where they have to go. They have to develop a communications plan. You know, some of these vaccines are two doses, so they have to, you know, if John or Greg gets a vaccine one day, we have to figure out where you're going to get your vaccine the next day. You know, none of us have seen the sort of distribution rollout plan. Uh, it's basically hidden in the files of Operation Warp Speed. The Biden incoming administration can't get access to it. And so it's a big black box. Like we're just crossing our fingers and praying that, you know, there's no funny business in these contracts and procurement and logistics contracts that are going to make things difficult when everybody sees what's in it in January. I read that in my home state of Minnesota, they've had a program where the flu vaccine has been distributed to people in cars um, by mask nurses in traffic vests who reach into cars to give passengers flu shots uh, and that they consider this a test run for a COVID vaccine. What do you think of that? It's great. Bring the, bring the healthcare to the people, right? It's like, you know, I'm a big fan of like, don't make patients come to you, go to the patients, you know, and if nurses are out uh, and healthcare workers are out, drive up flu vaccination clinics where they can just jab you in the arm and you can drive away, all, all the better. Faster, most, more efficient, more convenient is what we need to do for people to get access to vaccines. If it's like you need to go at certain hours to a certain single place in your community, it's not going to work. That's why, you know, all these chain pharmacies and, and big box stores are, 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 uh, might be a blessing in terms of the availability and accessibility of vaccines. And now I want to talk about the, the, the financing of, of the research a little bit. I understand Moderna got a billion dollars, that's B is in baby billion, from the government to fund research and another billion and a half in advance orders for the vaccine, which will be free, paid for by the government. And yet the Moderna CEO, a man named Stefan Bansell, told investors that the company, quote, retains worldwide rights to develop and commercialize the vaccine, and that Moderna will, quote, realize all the profits from our COVID-19 vaccine. We should have a unique cash position at the end of 2021, close quote. Obviously, this will be in the billions of dollars, but American taxpayers invested a billion dollars. Why does Moderna get all the profits? It's, it's a big question that... Everybody who works on access to medicines was asking way before the COVID-19 epidemic. You know, you and I as taxpayers pay uh, money every year to the IRS, which goes out to the National Institutes of Health, which goes out to individual researchers and goes out to companies to support basic biomedical research in the United States. So Johnson & Johnson is like, we didn't get taken any government money. Oh, wait a second. You know, all the basic research that went into developing your vaccine was not paid for out of your own pocket. So whether it's Moderna or Johnson & Johnson, the federal government has paid an underwritten uh, a huge amount of research in vaccines and on COVID. And, these, and as you said, for Moderna, it's, it's gotten direct cash transfers from the federal government. The point is, is that the federal government can exercise its rights to, to what is called government patent use. If, if, if any of these companies balked about giving away these vaccines for free, we could walk in and say, guess what? We have some intellectual property rights over these and we can pay you a reasonable royalty uh, and, and produce the vaccine through our own contracts and give it out to people around the world. This has been going on for years and years and years. You know, we pay more and more and more for drugs that um, 
we put into our bodies. And often it's, at the, it's subsidized twice. One out of your pocket when you, when you have to buy a drug or you have to pay for a vaccine. And the first, this first time actually when you're um, paying your taxes on a, on a yearly basis. Do you remember what Jonas Salk said when he developed the polio vaccine? Can you patent the sun? I think it's what Jonas Salk said about the polio vaccine. You know, the point is, is like, this is a huge issue every waking day for people who are, you know, insulin, for instance, the price of insulin, insulin, the makers of insulin never patented it. And companies have in cartel-like fashion raised the price of insulin over the past few years that people are dying for lack of insulin. So even way before COVID, companies were manipulating intellectual property in order to pursue profits at the expense of patients' lives. You said a few minutes ago that the federal COVID programs and masking became a political issue during the campaign. They remain a political issue now. Trump tweeted after the Moderna announcement, quote, for those great historians, please remember that these great discoveries, which will end the China plague, all took place on my watch, exclamation point, close quote. I was pleased that he wants, that he cares what historians think, even though he puts historians in quotation marks, but he's, he's, he's not giving up on this. I mean, who knows what's going on? You know, they haven't had a coronavirus task force meeting in weeks. Trump hasn't shown up to the coronavirus task force in five months. Meanwhile, you know, we started this conversation talking about what's happening in the Midwest uh, and the sort of raging conflagration of, of COVID-19 in the upper Midwest and Plain states. Um, and so it's all well and good to sort of tweet out and claiming credit for the work of scientists and, and private companies around the U.S. Yes, with government tax-funded dollars. But, you know, maybe he would get out of bed put the cell phone down and uh, come out and, and do some work to make sure that we, that we don't have thousands and thousands of more deaths over the course of the next few weeks. You wrote at thenation.com last week that right now you said Mitch McConnell is even deadlier than a virus. Please explain. So, you know, Donald Trump clearly has some personality issues, right? <laughs> okay. He's not- he clearly doesn't care about anybody but himself. Mitch McConnell has been a, a politician for a, a large portion of his adult life. He is now facing the test of his career. It's absolutely certain that we're going to need a massive, massive relief package um, as soon as possible. Before the, before the inauguration would be best, but the day after, you know, would be okay. This is going to be multi-trillion dollars. Remember, we had, you know, a three to three trillion dollar package earlier in the year. The epidemic is far worse now. The economic devastation is going to be far worse. Mitch McConnell says, oh, we don't need such a big ticket bill now. We can do some targeted relief. He didn't talk to an economist. He didn't talk to an epidemiologist. He talked to no one about this. This is about who's winning in Washington, D.C. And he sees his job as making Joe Biden a one-term president, like he said about President Obama, which is gruesome in, in, in ordinary times. But he is really standing in the way of a, a, a massive relief package that we need to scale up public health interventions to provide social and economic support to ordinary Americans. He is public enemy, public health enemy number one, and he doesn't care. And his actions alone will kill more people than the virus did left to its own devices. And what do you think of what Biden has done so far on the virus? He's saying all the right things, right? He's, he's gathered a group of you know, prominent physicians and others around him to advise him. Um, he's spoken about it in an economic and social context as well. His pandemic playbook is sound. He's made it the centerpiece of his early transition activities. And so 
all things uh, looking good. But it goes back to Mitch McConnell. It's like, you know, on January 20th, is he going to be able to do what he needs to do? Or is Mitch McConnell going to be Dr. No and say, well, you know, you may think you need $5 trillion or $3 trillion, but I'll, I'll give you a billion or $20 billion. I'll give you a drop in the bucket, which will hobble our relief efforts. And, you know, you wanted to talk about, you know, when we'll get out of this and when we'll see some relief from all of this. You know, Mitch McConnell is the break. He is the one who will stop our relief efforts uh, dead in its tracks and, and let the death toll mount, the economic devastation mount, because it doesn't matter what the plans say on paper from the, emerging, the uh, incoming Biden administration. It's about what the Congress will appropriate and allow the, the, the administration to do. Last but not least, what more do you want to see about the Moderna vaccine research or, or the other uh, test reports before you're willing to give us the purely green light and assure us that the f- future is going to be brighter? With all drug and vaccine approval, the data goes before the FDA. The FDA reviews it. Then they have an external advisory committee that reviews the data. And they'll make an adjudication about whether the statistical analyses and, and the claims that Medina and Johnson and Johnson made um, up till now hold hold water. But what's more important, you know, in the context of the conversation we had about public's faith in vaccines, is that we should make that data available to other scientists to to, to scrutinize and re- review as well. Um, this is something again. This is not new. Many of us have called for much more transparency in clinical trials and putting uh, data into repositories so that researchers can make requests to see the data and to analyze it separately. Because who knows what you'll find in a secondary analysis that might have been overlooked by an initial, an initial investigator. So when the, when the vaccine research group at the uh, FDA, their external advisors, uh, come in with a vote and, and come out with a finding, we'll know whether it should get a green light or not. That group of people is a a set of world-renowned vaccine researchers, statisticians, and other kinds of experts that will tell us the truth about what they see in the data and will will really make a case for its approval or make a case against it when they make the recommendation to the FDA. And when can we expect that FDA recommendation? Well, it depends. The companies keep talking about going forward with an emergency use authorization. That's different than a full approval, which... um, has a whole set of other regulatory requirements. FDA Commissioner Hahn has said that uh, if an EUA submission comes in under his watch, he will convene the, the ordinary panel, the traditional panel, to, to scrutinize the results. But, you know, we're in a little bit of gray territory because emergency use authorizations were supposed to be these last resort regulatory mechanisms to sort of get things out there when you need something there tomorrow, when it's a biological attack or something like that. We've now used it for hydroxychloroquine, for convalescent plasma, two duds. And uh, we, we've got to be very careful about how we think about regulating drugs and biologics for, for pandemics because we can't cut corners just because we can do it through regulatory authority. Greg Gonsalves, read him at thenation.com. Thank you, Greg. Great to have you on the show. Thanks, John. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Next up, Ella Taylor with Virus Time TV viewing, what to watch while we stay at home this week. Ella, of course, is a longtime film critic and writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the L.A. Weekly and NPR.org. We reached her today at home in Santa Monica 
Ella, welcome back. Hi, John. Happy to be here. Well, I think we have to talk about the new season four of The Crown, the Netflix series about the British royal family that is this year's guilty pleasure. It is, and uh, with a bit of an emphasis on the guilty, but we'll, <laughs> we'll get to that. Yes. Um, uh, I would, genre-wise, I would classify this season as with all the others as a kind of uh, classy soap opera with great writing and acting that is also ridiculously entertaining and a lot of it is not true but we'll get to that too. Peter Morgan is really the Aaron Sorkin of of England. (laughs) I mean words just pour out of him and they're all wonderful, very British of course where Sorkin is very American. Uh, The season hinges on an offhanded comment by Prince Philip who's wonderfully played by Tobias Menzies. He makes a a comment part joking and part peevish about two women running the shop and the two women are of course Queen Elizabeth II who's played by Olivia Colman who looks nothing like the Queen but does a very creditable job of imitating her um, and the other one is Margaret Thatcher um, who was Prime Minister um, for season four, became Prime Minister for season four and she is played by Gillian Anderson, who is also the partner of Peter Morgan in real life. And she uh, is does a pretty marvelous Maggie Thatcher with that kind of deceptively, um, deceptive whisper in which she talked um, that she made her seem like a pussycat. And of course, she was actually a tiger who was known for most of her reign as a, uh, the Iron Lady of the West, a title she adored, I might add. <laughs> okay. um, and it is also uh, the season uh, where Princess Diana becomes a princess, marries Prince, Prince Charles, the other way around, sorry. I do want to single out um, Emma Corrin, who's a newcomer who plays Diana, and she's awfully good, even though she is much more small-boned than Princess Diana, who was huge. Also, Josh O'Connor, the marvellously versatile British actor. You may have seen him in God's Own Country, uh, a marvellous film by Francis Lee last year, um, who plays Charles and everything. I mean, he's also got this terribly posh accent, but um, everything is in his posture with his head hanging slightly down just as Charles did. I mean, he's, he would not, uh, Prince Charles would not recognize this word, but he is definitely a nebbish in many respects. <laughs> in my notes, in my notes, I call him the queen's sad sack son. Yes. <laughs> um, also Emerald Fennel, who plays his longtime lover, Camilla, who uh, you may remember her from the the other soap, British soap opera that's awfully good, which is called The Midwife, in which she plays a lesbian nurse. But here she's just having a blast as Camilla, who's this very joyous, horsey um, character and quite the opposite of Diana, who, of course, is uh, very soon into the series, is suffering terribly from bulimia uh, and being ignored. There's a very painful scene in which she tries to engage the sympathies of Queen Elizabeth. And I'll say a bit more about that because I think the show, uh, Morgan in general, tends to have it in for mothers in rather unfair ways. 
Um, but also somebody that people are not mentioning very, very much, and that is Erin uh, Doherty, who plays Princess Anne, who's a very horsey, forthright type, um, also a very much a, a neglected child in, in the season, not by her father, she was his favourite, uh, but by her mother, and she's absolutely terrific. She's got this great scowl. Uh, Helena Bonham Carter, who really, I think, comes into her own in this season because uh, it's really about her own suffering as uh, a perennial number two, a lifelong uh, number two. Princess and Margaret. She is Princess Margaret, the Queen's bitter and unhappy yeah. older sister. She is bitter, but not towards her sister. They are very close and very fond of each other. And I'm glad that he actually um, paid tribute to that because I think it really was a feature of their relationship. They couldn't be more different. Uh, Princess Margaret is wild and is a party animal and uh, in some ways, you know, by far the more entertaining character. There is also um, Tom Brooke, who plays Michael Fagan, who is a working class man, full of bitterness and in some respects, uh, rightly so, separated from his wife, uh, has no job uh, and is very much a casualty of Margaret Thatcher's austerity policies in which she cut public funding just unconscionably during this period. I remember it. Um, and he, this really happened. I remember that too. He broke into the palace, not once, but twice, and made it as far as the edge of Queen Elizabeth's bed, where they had uh, some rather interesting conversations about what it was like to be him rather wow. than her. Um, that did happen. I think it's handled very beautifully. And Tom Brooke is really wonderful as that character. And Tobias Menz is as Prince Philip, who... It, somehow all his consonants merge into his vowels and vice versa. So you have absolutely no idea what he's really saying. The word very becomes they. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is what the closed captions are for. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I got him because uh, I'm from there. Um, and uh, one aspect of this show is to show the aristocracy as being outside of very rigid class system as a very bizarre tribe of their own. One of the scenes that has caused an absolute ruckus in England, not just from the royal family, but from journalists as respected as Simon Jen Jenkins of The Guardian, in which Margaret Thatcher and her husband, Dennis, also played by a very good actor whose name I can't remember, are invited to Balmoral Castle. And they get it all wrong. Um, they show up, uh, she shows up in an evening gown and the rest of the royal family, uh, that's Thatcher, you know, in an evening gown, whereas the rest of the family is uh, in their horsey tweeds. Uh, and is utterly, she and her husband are really completely humiliated. The family plays this bizarre game called Dibble Dibble. You can't even figure out what the rules of it are. I was hoping you would explain it. Never heard of it. Uh, yeah, believe me, I'm not from that class by a very long shot. But the aim of it is to show that Margaret Thatcher was extremely middle class and to show the aristocracy, the royals, as a very bizarre tribe who have virtually no connection to the rest of the society of which they, over which they rule. And Thatcher comes across almost as a sympathetic character in, in those scenes. It is said that they never happened. 
I find the show ridiculously entertaining. When I first heard about it, I thought, oh, Lord, it's going to be another Downton Abbey or upstairs, downstairs. And it's very much not that. The line, the official line, is that it attempts to humanize the royal family. And I think that's a little bit of a euphemism for trash them into oblivion. <laughs> they, they really are. This season is is very centrally about all the children of Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip <clears throat> portraying them all as broken people, either dweebs like uh, Prince Charles or neurotics or um, uh, Princess Anne, who is just, you know, completely outshone by... Diana, when she comes into her own, is very beautiful, very glamorous. And I think it is as best a, a partial truth. When you are using people's real names, then the question arises, do you have a, a greater obligation, obligation to veracity than if you are calling the Queen, Queen Zelda? Um, <laughs> And I think that that's a valid point to raise. You know, this is a portrait of the family, as uh, Simon Jenkins wrote in his article, F is for fiction. Now, I think he's gilding the lily there because I think most people know that this is a fiction. Um, but because, you know, it's covering the chronological imagining of all these crises, I think perhaps it does have uh, more of an obligation to not, it can certainly dramatize, but not to invent. There is one consistent truth to the story that Princess Mar is put in the in the mouth of Princess Margaret at one of these family meetings that the 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 royal family has. Uh, um, Charles calls them the whole ghastly Politburo. They can see that the marriage of Diana and Charles is going to be a disaster if it happens, but it has to go forward because Charles needs an heir, and and Princess Margaret is a truth teller. She reminds us in the audience that this family has come to disaster before because they won't let people marry the person they love. I'm embarrassed to know the whole story. Uh, Edward VIII, who is Queen Elizabeth's uncle, gave up the throne and abdicated to marry the woman he loved, and then he became a Nazi. Then Princess Margaret, in an earlier year of the crown, wasn't allowed to marry the man she loved, group captain Peter Townsend. That was in the early 50s, and she married this photographer, society photographer, and they had a terrible marriage, and she ends up bitter, divorced, and unhappy. Then Charles is not allowed to marry the woman he loves, Camilla Parker Bowles, because she's married. <laughs> yes, and he's pressured to marry Diana. She was 18, and he was 31. They didn't know each other. They had nothing in common, and eventually they divorced, and eventually Camilla got divorced, and they, they are now happily married. So the story is that the whole ghastly Politburo enforces this rule that the, the family heir is the most important thing and everybody has to sacrifice for this. And when there's a one moment of doubt that Queen Elizabeth has where she worries that she has not been a good mother and her husband, Prince Philip, tells her, your job is to keep breathing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's a wonderful line, of course, of the uh, a getaway line, and and there is a real, but there really is a dilemma there because the monarchy is there, really, almost exclusively to be an example uh, to the nation. 
in what way would be a subject for for dispute. But um, I think that that's Elizabeth understands very clearly that that's her task. That is the life that was set out for her. Um, so, uh, you know, Diana, who seems like a very good prospect because she is at least in theory a virgin, although people say that she was quite a lass even before then, and who is young and therefore very likely fertile and will produce and did indeed cough up two boys, um, you know, as she was also somewhat destroyed in the process. But I think the, the season fails to mention that she had a pretty troubled life way before. Uh, she came onto the scene as the wife of, of Prince Charles. That was not a good family um, in terms of, it really did have a mother who was off partying, I think. I think she, uh, but what they didn't see was that she probably wasn't a good prospect. And in fact, Charles's you know, union with Camilla has proved exactly what the doctor ordered as far as the monarchy is concerned. She comes from that class and she knows uh, what she's supposed to do. And she's also apparently a very jolly soul. <laughs> the background to all of this that that we know and care about was the British colonialism was in its last legs. South African apartheid was very much on the front pages. The Irish, quote, troubles are you know, mentioned. Uh, there's, as you said, there's this terrible recession exacerbated by Thatcher's policies. We're told about these. We get a little pictures of some of them, but this is really not a story about all of the politics of Thatcher's uh, Britain. Uh, my favorite symbol in all of season four, it, it's a shot of, of the Queen Mother's rooms in the palace and a mouse runs across the floor while she waits for the phone call that Charles has proposed to Diana. She does not notice the mouse. And this is kind of the symbol of how the place is, is infested and is rotting and is falling, is falling apart. And I think that's sort of what we're supposed to get out of this. Why have a Royal family if there's such a miserable bunch of uh, self-destructive and damn, they're also damaged and, and destructive. So that is the crown. It's playing on Netflix. It's our guilty pleasure of, of the season. How about something else to watch that's not about British royalty? Uh, this is definitely not about that. This is a, a, a pretty good documentary about uh, George Soros, the billionaire philanthropist um, who has been a target both of the left and the right, uh, the extreme right, that is. Um, it's made by Jesse Dillon, who um, seems to be quite close to the Soros family. Uh, so it's a little bit of a love letter, um, but it's also very uh, in illuminating in terms of what powered, what powers George Soros. And I use the verb advisedly. <laughs> um, he is a man of considerable uh, power and also its roots in his childhood in Hungary. Um, which is where he comes from. Uh, his family are Holocaust survivors. Um, the Nazis invaded Hungary only in 1944, which may have been when, you know, it looked as though the writing was on the wall for the Third Reich, uh, which may have accounted for the particular brutality with which they killed virtually the entire community in, in Budapest, uh, which had a very large Jewish community. 
Soros's father, he came from an upper middle class cultivated family, um, managed to save the family um, uh, by using false, uh, false identity to the extent that, that nobody knew that the family was Jewish. Uh, they were very assimilated. And uh, in 1947, George, his son George, made his way to the United Kingdom, where he attended the London School of Economics, which also was populated with Mick Jagger and myself, much, la much less famously myself, much less later on. It's a significant <laughs> thing to mention, not because of me or Mick, um, but because there he came under the influence of the uh, philosopher Karl Popper, uh, who wrote a very famous book called The Open Society and Its Enemies, uh, which indeed is the reason his, that Soros's foundation is called The Open Society Foundation. And it really spoke to um, Soros, who had been through the most awful things. His mother was raped by, by the Nazis. And it gave him a, a lifelong a hatred of um, totalitarianism and all in all its forms. And like Popper, he equated communism, Soviet communism with Nazism in the sense that he said they're both uh, dictators, uh, dictatorships. And um, uh, for him, that was a lifelong influence on his thought. But first he came to America, and, and as he says in an interview, to make a great deal of money, which he did indeed do, became a billionaire. There was one famous occasion when he um, made a billion dollars in one day, um, and we have to wonder why none of it came our way. And he um, became a billionaire really got into the business of making money until the stress of it resulted in his divorce. Um, his children are in the documentary and although they're extremely supportive of their father, it's clear that it had its effect on his kids as well. So in 1979, he switched gears in a very radical way and used his many billions to become a philanthropist, particularly of causes that favored uh, democracy and freedom. Um, uh, he has given millions in the years from then until the present and continues to do so. And the result of that is that he's become a target for the conspiracy theory minded um, who have actually called him an, a Nazi on the basis of a completely insignificant incident in his uh, childhood. Uh, and of course, for anti-Semites of every description, particularly in Europe, but also here in the United States. Um, he founded a university in Budapest, which was forced to close um, and move to, uh, I believe, Vienna, uh, paid for the educations of thousands of um, of black uh, children and students under South African apartheid, has been a big benefactor of Human Rights Watch. Um, one interesting feature of the movie um, is that he also is very open about admitting when he's wrong. He was an early backer of Aung San Suu Kyi in uh, then Burma originally and now Myanmar and admitted he was wrong and has now switched gears and is funneling huge amounts of money to the Rohingya um, refugees. So um, 
his general theme is openness of mind and openness of society. He's and uh, with a, an emphasis on freedom and democracy. Uh, and I think that the film pays him, you know, tribute in that regard. Uh, perhaps he could have focused more on his um, gaming. I think it, it was the Bank of I can't remember if it was the Bank of America or the Bank of England um, to make uh, lots of money. So you know, his early past is something. I mean, he's very, very firm when he's asked about uh, the two prongs of his career, one as a billionaire capitalist, super capitalist, and the other as a philanthropist. And he's very firm about the fact that they're not connected. Uh, I suspect they are connected in that there's a, an element of atonement in, in the second part of his career for the first part. He did have something like a, a breakdown uh, over his divorce in the, in the 70s, uh, and uh, it led to very fruitful things. So um, it's a great, it's a really great uh, documentary in that regard and can be seen uh, as coming uh, on Friday at, uh, in the Lemley Virtual Cinema and also at sorosfilm.com. Ella Taylor with our Virus Time TV picks. Ella, it's always great to have you on the show. Thank you, John. I really enjoyed it. I'm going back to the to finish off, polish off the crown now. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want to trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>